In the podcast that you are about to listen to, we make reference to a case, IBM versus Siskel, that went before the Court of Appeal in February of this year. At the time of recording our podcast, that case had not yet been heard by the Court of Appeal. However, since we recorded, the Court of Appeal has now handed down judgment in that case. In particular, the Court of Appeal has reversed the decision of the lower court in relation to the issue of whether or not the exclusion of liability clause in the contract excluded Siskel's claim for wasted costs. More detail as to that judgment and its implications can be found on the DLAPiper.com website in an article written by myself, Simon Kenyon, and my partner in our technology disputes team, Philip Kelly. If you have any queries in relation to that decision, please do not hesitate to contact us. Thank you. Welcome to the fourth instalment of the DLA Piper Technology Disputes podcast, Get IT Right. I'm Simon Kenyon, a litigation and regulatory partner of DLA Piper, and I also co-head DLA Piper's UK and international technology disputes practices. I'm joined today by my colleague Ben Fellows, a senior associate in our technology disputes team. Both Ben and I have significant experience in advising clients on disputes relating to technology contracts, and we're delighted you've taken time out of your day to join us for this podcast. The first three of the podcasts in this series focused on dispute proofing your technology project, the steps a business could take to best protect itself in the event of a dispute arising at a later date in relation to a project. They included tips for dispute proofing your technology project, operating the contract to your advantage, and being prepared for potential restrictions on technology claims. If you missed any of those podcasts and the articles which accompany them, or would like to listen again, you can find them all wherever you normally download your podcasts or on the dlapiper.com website. In the final three podcasts in the current series, we will shift our focus to when things have gone wrong. And over the next few weeks, we're aiming to share with you our experiences and some tips for effective dispute management. Today's podcast focuses on navigating breaches and termination effectively. No easy task, but hopefully if you've planned ahead and followed some of the tips from our earlier podcasts, when a dispute arises, you'll already be a step ahead and be able to utilise that to your advantage. So Ben, we've got an IT contract and one party or perhaps both are not happy. What in your view are some of the most common reasons for this? Thanks Simon. Well, issues can occur in IT contracts for a wide variety of reasons. These can be as a result of individual failings by either side, but often it's not really that clear cut. A few examples are really poor communication, that can be at the heart of it. So what may at first sight appear to be a failure by the supplier to deliver on time or in accordance with the contractual specification could in fact turn out to have been caused or indeed contributed to by the customer not having known what to ask for in the first place or having changed or indeed refined its requirements midway through the contractual life cycle. Another thing can be vagueness of certain high-level requirements, so a failure to really adequately define what was required at the beginning, costs running away with themselves during performance of the contract, or even performance bearing little resemblance to what the contract actually says. I'm sure that we've both regularly seen these types of issues in practice. Yeah, absolutely, Ben. I mean, ascertaining the obligations which are often interrelated and the intention of the parties as revealed by the original contract can indeed be a quite complex problem. 
particularly I'd say with the benefit of hindsight getting in the way as well to cloud the issues and people's perspectives and also their memories of events. And each dispute obviously will inevitably turn on its own facts. But can you perhaps just talk us through certain key issues which, in your view, repeatedly arise? Well, I think, ironically, one of the most common issues can be actually trying to find a copy of the signed contract. A lot of the time, these things are negotiated over several months, and then after they've been signed, they're put in a drawer and forgotten about. Another issue can be if if there's been written variations or even addendums to the original agreement, or if the contract's just been varied by conduct, the parties have, have changed the mind, they might have documented this over email or just verbally over the phone. So actually working out what each side is meant to be doing currently when a dispute arises can be a bit of a minefield, particularly when each side disagrees what they're meant to be doing. So often we get asked when a dispute arises, can I terminate the contract? Answering that question isn't necessarily a straightforward task for all the reasons I just mentioned. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It can be something of a lawyer's field day, I'd suggest. I mean, the starting point has to be the contract when trying to ascertain the rights and obligations each party has regarding the successful delivery of the project. And that, of course, can be made all the more difficult to advise on if the contract has gone through various amendments, as you suggest, sometimes adhering to the required contractual procedure for change, but sometimes, unfortunately, not. And a solid base is obviously needed when dealing with issues of breach and termination, but frequently, in my experience at least, the reality is somewhat spongier and perhaps uncertain. Exactly. I mean, you've got the potential minefield of the contract and variations, as, as we mentioned, but equally, the, you know, the written agreement can also sometimes be silent on key areas, that, you know, leading one side to contend that terms should be implied and usually that there's then been a breach of that term. Or if you flip it to the other side, that the term excuses the party who wants to rely on it as regards what otherwise might be, you know, its own breach. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned implied terms there. Could you just explain a little bit about what they are, but obviously keep it quite high level? Yes, no, happy to. I think we'd be here all day if we were going to treat it in any other way. I guess in general terms, a term can be implied in common law or by statute, or indeed on the basis that the parties must have intended such a clause to be present. Terms can be implied at common law where it's necessary to give business efficacy to the contract, The term represents the obvious but unexpressed intention of the parties and the test for that one is not necessarily a low hurdle. It is implied from common usage or custom or indeed implied from a previous course of dealing. And then when you're looking at IT or technology contracts, terms can also be implied by law which are not based on the common intention of the parties but implied by the courts in relation to that specific type or class of contract. So, for example, if you've got a large outsourcing or IT agreement, these obviously require a lot of cooperation between the parties to make them work. And the courts can and do imply terms requiring cooperation between the parties to ensure that effect is given to the performance of their obligations as intended in the contract. Sure, and I think it may sound surprising to some that the courts can imply terms into what often can be contracts that run into hundreds of pages and lots and lots of schedules. But as you say, Ben, if the contract is silent or perhaps just doesn't work without such a term, while seeking to assert an implied term is certainly not a straightforward task, I'd agree with you on that, it may be necessary to do so. You also mentioned terms implied by statute. Are they any more straightforward at all? Well, they can be. It depends really on what the contract says. 
You know, as with implied terms in common law, you might well have an entire agreement clause or exclusion clauses that seek to exclude statutory implied terms or, or any implied term. Though, depending on various factors, including the relative bargaining position of the parties and whether an agreement has been concluded on one party's terms, it might still be possible to imply a term at either common law or statute. In terms of statutory implied terms, the most frequently relied on on the statutory implied terms are those under the Sale of Goods Act 1979, of Satisfactory Quality and Fitness for Purpose, and all the Supply of Goods and Services Act 1982, that a service will be provided with reasonable care and skill. Okay, thanks, Ben. So we've got the contract, we've identified the relevant contractual rights and obligations, be they expressly provided for in the contract or perhaps ones which can be implied. What needs to be considered next as regards any decisions a business may wish to take? Well, I think that's often where um, seasoned lawyers can add some real value early on. I think some of the key questions to ask or discuss with your lawyers should be perhaps an obvious one to start with, but you know, has there been a breach of contract? And if so, how serious is it? Can the breach be remedied? And does an opportunity to remedy have to be given? Has any damage been suffered? If so, is the loss quantifiable? Is a financial remedy sufficient? Does anything need to happen quickly? Might injunctive relief be necessary to you know, either compel the other side to do something or indeed prevent it from doing something, which can sometimes be terminating the agreement? And then if you decide to terminate, what are the consequences on termination? You know, a few examples are you might have to go out and retender, effectively start again. There's likely to be, uh, you know, a significant amount of management time involved in retendering or seeking a new contract partner. Reputational issues in the market, you know, wider reputational impact on your business. A litigation risk. Will the other side accept the termination? Are they likely to challenge it? Is there going to be some follow-on litigation either instigated by yourself or your contracts party? And then if you do end up in the courts and you win, you get a sum of money in damages. Actually getting that out of the other side can sometimes be tricky. You should think early on or relatively early on as to what steps you might need to take to enforce that award. There's nothing worse, I'm sure you'll agree, than coming away with a decent sum of money in judgment and not being able to get that paid. So I think... Those are the questions to ask when looking at a potential contractual claim, but equally applicable, really, if looking to run a tortious claim as well, being it against your contract party or, if the circumstances permit, a subcontractor of your contract party. And now, parties will often seek to exclude a tortious duty, but it's something to consider, particularly if you think that your losses in a contractual claim might be curtailed because of a well-drafted exclusion or limitation of liability clause. All really useful points there, Ben. And as you say, getting the strategy right and running a full cost-benefit analysis early on can certainly help to focus minds and ensure that all potential outcomes are considered. And I think it's really important to identify the objective or perhaps the objectives at the start in order to devise the best strategy to deliver the desired outcome for the client. So let's talk about termination for a breach of contract. It may sound relatively straightforward and oftentimes clients approach us asking if they can terminate and expect an answer within the hour or on the same day. Actually, in my experience, it generally isn't as straightforward as that. And I assume that's your experience as well. 
Oh, absolutely. It certainly is. I mean, a breach of contract can have wide ranging consequences. You know, as I mentioned earlier, some of minor insignificance, but, you know, others can be business critical or even business ending. I think the things to consider are what is the significance of the breach? Is it going to be a simple low level damages claim or does it give rise to a right to terminate? If the right to terminate does arise, you know, do you want to exercise that right? You need to decide that fairly quickly as you don't want to lose the rights by counter-allegations of affirmation. That is that you've elected to waive the breach or, or carry on with the contract. You know, could partial termination be an option? Are there any other remedies such as step-in rights triggers? That is when you effectively step in and either perform some or all of part of the agreement. And then, you know, if you're thinking about terminating, what are the exit transition arrangements and if you are going to terminate is that going to require some further working together through a you know a transitional period with the other side if it is you might not want to go in um, overly aggressive at the beginning and in terminating as you know you might have to work together for a number of months whilst you transition to uh, a new contract partner yeah and that can be quite tricky and difficult as i'm sure others will attest to So really, I guess the starting point is if you're relying on an express term, that is one included in the contract, you need to identify the term and what it says. So for example, is time said to be of the essence? Is a term stated to be a condition? Is it a material breach? And does the contract provide for there being interrelated obligations? And as I've already said, there usually will be those in an IT project, such that performance or non-performance rather by one party may be excused by the non-performance of the other. And I think it's worth flagging to our listeners that even if a clause appears on its face to entitle a party to terminate, there's a need to follow the clauses through the rest of the contract and ascertain if there are any preconditions on exercising a right of termination, any rights to remedy a material breach, any dispute escalation procedures that need to be followed, as well as complying with the notice provisions. So I mentioned material breach there as part of that list which is often provided for in the contract as the basis for a termination. So how easy is it to determine what amounts to a material breach? In short, not very. I mean, it helps if there is a clearly defined list of material breach events in the contract, but it's often not that straightforward. And the event itself might well be a material breach, despite not appearing in the list within the contract. There's been various guidance provided by the courts in cases that have litigated this concept, but really, you know, each case will turn on its facts and on the wording of the contract. This is where, you know, a well-drafted contract can really come into its own. And if the parties have given some foresight, some forethought to what material breach events might constitute and listed those out in the contract at the beginning. I think the other thing to flag regarding material breach provisions is that they can usually or sometimes afford a party the opportunity to remedy that breach. And then if you are the breaching party, the one who has allegedly breached and is being asked to remedy, it's important to actually go about remedying that sooner rather than later and not just saying that you will. There was an interesting case a couple of years ago, Baines and Arundel, where a party in breach had written to the other side saying that they, you know, they intended to perform the agreement, but they didn't actually start performing the agreement. And the court held that that wasn't enough to remedy the material breach. To remedy the breach, you need to start performing, not just telling the other side that you're going to perform it at some point in the future. And I think it's also just worth flagging here that 
whilst material breach is you know the most commonly used phrase substantial breach can also make an appearance that was the case in crane and wittenborg in which uh, the court held that the level of contractual deprivation that would entitle a party to terminate for a substantial breach was no different than a repudiatory breach. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of layers of complexity there, I'd say, that we don't have time to get into properly today. For example, if there is a material breach, and as you suggest, sometimes the contract will provide some guidance on that by expressly stating that certain breaches will be material, but not always, of course, or not always by way of an exhaustive list, such that there might be a need to assert a material breach based on a combination of the facts, the contract, and also the relevant case law. Also, again, as you said, if there is a material breach, is it capable of remedy or is it incapable of remedy? For example, just because something is delivered late, it doesn't mean that the breach cannot be cured simply because time travel is impossible. Now, interestingly, you also mentioned repudiatory breach there, Ben. What is a repudiatory breach? Well, a repudiatory breach is an established concept under English common law, which also determines its meaning and effect. And, you know, essentially, it's a breach of contract by the other party, which is so serious, you know, it's it's often said that it goes to the heart of the contract, that it affords the non-fault party to elect to continue or affirm the contract and seek damages, or accept the repudiation and terminate the agreement and also claim damages. Now, it will generally relate to a breach of term of the contract, which is so important that it's what lawyers refer to as a condition of the contract. So in other words, not just any old minor breach will be enough to amount to a repudiatory breach. Yeah, I mean, effectively, there's a hierarchy of breach there, isn't there? Starting with those breaches where the only remedy which may be available is one of damages and nothing else. So termination is out of the question. You then move up to the next rung of the ladder, where you have a material breach, which is often described as something that's not as trivial as a a standard breach, but is not as serious as a repudiatory one. And effectively, you have the hybrid position that I was describing earlier of having to look at what's in the contract to give you some guidance on whether or not there's been a material breach, but also looking at the case law and applying the facts as they are in your particular case. And then finally, at the top of the tree, and the most difficult to prove in a court, is a repudiatory breach. And There are two, I suppose, obvious examples of what might constitute a repudiatory breach. There's the renunciation type claim where effectively one party has walked away from the contract. And in some respects, that might be seen as being quite easy to prove. But of course, if a party walks away from a contract, that's hardly likely to happen in a vacuum. And therefore, there'll be all sorts of facts sitting behind that, which again, may complicate the picture somewhat as to whether or not that walking away is in effect a repudiation of the contract. And then you have perhaps the most difficult species, which is where one party alleges that the other has substantially deprived it of the benefit of what it contracted for. And that does certainly carry the highest risk premium. And then, as you say, in terms of an election about repudiatory breach, that is fraught with difficulty as well, because a party only has a reasonable amount of time to decide whether or not to elect to affirm the contract or to terminate it. And what is a reasonable period of time will be determined by the case, the contracts and lots of other things which make it difficult to make that judgment call. All the time the clock is ticking and of course the other side may cure the breach before you get a chance to terminate. You may even commit your own repudiatory breach which the other party may accept and terminate you. Or you may take too long 
and so by conduct or otherwise be taken to have affirmed the contract so that it continues, meaning that if you then later purport to terminate, you will be in repudiatory breach. And then, as we've seen in the past, the tables will be turned and the other party will be saying that your purported termination is itself wrongful and that they are now terminating for your repudiatory breach. So the whole thing sort of gets very messy and complicated with daggers drawn on both sides. Okay, so that's a brief tour of a number of issues regarding breach and whether a party can or even would want to terminate. And there's been a relatively recent and certainly very interesting case last year, but with a judgment to watch out for from the Court of Appeal shortly, which brings into play a lot of those issues that we've outlined today and previously, isn't there? There is, Simon. Yeah, that's right. CIS and IBM, which is now known as Soteria Insurance and IBM, following CIS changed its name. Now, the case itself is a bit of a monster, and you know that's probably borne out by the fact that the judgment itself runs to uh, 170 pages. You know, for any listener who wants a bit of a light bedtime reading, but I guess the highlights and relevant facts are these. So, CIS contracted with IBM in June 2015 to implement a new managed IT system and uh, you know the implementation of that system didn't go well. The dispute itself arose when IBM raised an invoice to CIS for three million pounds which IBM said was in accordance with the agreed contractual payment milestones. CIS disputed that invoice was payable and it didn't pay it. In July 2017 IBM purported to terminate the contract as a result of CIS's non-payment of the the £3 million invoice. At that point, CIS argued that IBM was in repudiatory breach by purporting to terminate the contract without the right to do so. The reason for that is that CIS stated that it had challenged the invoice under the contractual mechanism to challenge that invoice and indeed it hadn't committed a repudiatory breach of contract. Perhaps unsurprisingly you know each party pointed to the other for the delays in the uh, in the implementation of the system. CIS accepted IBM's repudiatory breach and sued IBM for £128 million. That sum was largely made up of the total wasted costs of the failed project. CIS brought a claim for around £128 million, being its total wasted costs of the failed project. It sought around £16 million, being its additional costs incurred as a result of the various issues with the system, which it said amounted to pre-termination breaches. IBM counterclaimed to recover its £3 million outstanding invoice. Now, at first instance, the High Court held that IBM had repudiated the contract between the parties, but it dismissed C's claim to recover the expenditure it wasted by reason of that repudiation on the basis that that wasted expenditure was excluded by an exclusion of loss of profit, revenue or savings clause in the master services agreement between the parties. So the net outcome was that CBS, CIS rather, got a net £13 million, being the £16 million it claimed for pre-termination breaches, less £3 million in respect of IBM's invoice and nothing for the wasted expenditure. Now, given the sums involved, it's probably not surprising that CAS appealed that decision and that appeal was heard at the end of February. Now, the first judgment took over a year to hand down, but let's hope that we don't have uh, quite as long to wait for the Court of Appeals decision. 
No, that's right, Ben. And I think many of the common themes and common issues in disputes relating to digital transformation projects can be found in that case. There was a burning platform because CIS had to move off the existing platform quite quickly, which led to an aggressive timetable for delivery. It was a complicated solution in the sense that it mixed, configured, customised and based development of an existing off-the-shelf product, which wasn't quite as well appreciated as perhaps it should have been at the start of the project. There were multiple parties involved, not just CIS and IBM, but many subcontractors as well. So there were many components and interfaces within the solution. The solution was for a, a client in the highly regulated industry, the insurance industry, which added its own layer of complication. And then when the project started, there was what we often see, which was a deferral of clarification regarding certain requirements and then changes of delivery process where things weren't being delivered on time. So the parties decided to break up existing releases into mini releases and mini drops in order to get something delivered. The introduction of a minimum viable product, which is never good news in a project, and the deferral as part of that of more difficult functionality. And then when testing started, that didn't go too well either. So testing was descoped or testing stages were collapsed. And there was generally poor communication between the parties and a, and a lack of contractual rigour. And so there was an increasing divergence between what was in the contract and how the parties tended to operate it. So really, that case is a case study all of its own, and one which we have done some training on for a number of clients for that very reason. And we don't have time to go into it in more detail now, but it's an interesting case to finish on. And as you suggest, I certainly, for one, will be eagerly awaiting the Court of Appeals decision. So... Thanks, Ben. I think that wraps it up for the fourth episode of the DLA Piper Technology Disputes podcast, Get IT Right. We hope you all enjoyed it and found it useful. Please look out for the article which accompanies this episode, which will also shortly be available on the DLAPiper.com website. Thank you to everyone who has listened to episode four. As always, if you have any queries arising out of the points we've raised, please do get in touch with us through our website. I look forward to welcoming you all again to our fifth episode in a few weeks' time, where I will be joined by my colleague Sarah Ellington to discuss the most effective dispute resolution procedure options for technology disputes. But for now, from Ben and I, thank you for listening.